Good morning. We all stand for the reading of the word. This morning, Mark 14, 43 through 52. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and all the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, we have a real treat and honor this morning as we have another guest preacher from another local church here in Portland speaking with us. This is Michelle Jones. You should give her a warm welcome. Michelle, pastor of spiritual formation. Is that current? Is that old? Discipleship Discipleship? and formation. Discipleship and formation at Imago Day, just down the street there on 13th and Ankeny or so. You've been there seven years, eight years? Six years. Six years? I'll get all the facts slightly wrong. It's okay. It's all Um, right. But we're in the ballpark. Um, Yeah, Michelle, it is such an honor. Thank you for giving your time to both prep this and to be here with us. We are so glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Yeah, whoever's stuff this is right here, if it gets all tangled and messy and stuff like that, I'm just sorry. (laughs) And if I start preaching lyrics to a song, just call me out. Say something. So good morning, Door of Hope. See, now this is good. I need to have you guys come and teach Imago Day. I always have to say good morning twice at Imago Day, because I say good morning, and they go, and I'm like, okay, people, I grew up in a black church. I need you to talk. There you go. My friend, what's your name? Roger. Thank you, Roger. I feel like I'm at home now. So I am excited to be here. As Cam said, I am one of the pastors over at Imago Day. And I've been there six years as of January. And I really want you to know just how grateful I am that Cam asked me to come and speak to you today. And I I am grateful because one of the things that Cam said to me when we first started talking is he said, he said, so you're gonna be the first woman to come and preach a sermon at Door of Hope. And he said, I hope that's okay. And I said, I said, I'm not, it's not the first time I'll be the first something, and it won't be the last time I'll be the first something. But I want to, I want to just take a few minutes, if you'll indulge me, to, uh, to tell you like a couple of, of stories that kind of, kind of help shape who I am so that you have an idea of, of who I am. One is 20 plus years ago, close to, I, I would say probably about 25 years ago, I was on a plane on my way to Israel, and this was, 
I don't know, maybe a year or two after I knew that I was called to preach and knew that I was called to be a pastor, but nothing had happened because my, my, my comment to God when he said, this is what I've called you to was, I'm not gonna chase that because what I don't wanna be is that person who just kinda like opens up a church in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven and, and just has like seven people gathered in their name every week and says, the Lord called me to this. I did not wanna be that person. Plus I was working in television at a really good job and I was making a bunch of money. So I was just like, okay God, you open the doors, I will walk through. So I happened to be getting ready to, we were on our way to Israel actually and I'm on the plane and it's late at night and I strike at this conversation with this guy from some rando guy from Missouri somewhere or one of the states that's square that starts with an M and and he's sitting behind me and we started talking we got on the subject of, of calling and pastors and things like that and he said to me women God doesn't call women to be pastors he doesn't call women to preach that's just not the Lord now I, I sometimes say I'm only 51% saved because every once in a while that 49 just kicks in and I just want to just get rowdy. So there was a Bible under the seat in front of me and I was thinking I could pull this out and I could just kind of like get him told, right? But the Holy Spirit just kind of stopped me and just said, just kind of dropped something in my, in my heart. And I said to him, here's what I need you to do for me. I need you to pray for me because God knows I wanna do what God wants me to do. So he'll either open a door that no man can shut or he'll shut some doors that no man can open. And when I got to Israel that next day, I was at a reception and a woman walked up to me and gave me a box. It was a, a Malachite stone box with a mother of pearl inlaid flowers on it. And she said, I wanna give you this gift. And she said, I was sitting in front of you on the plane and I want you to know that you handled that man like a pastor. And she gave me this gift. Second story. I was at church. This is, again, before, after I knew I was called, before I actually got my first job. And there was a guy who came to preach at our church. And he was maybe about five foot three, five foot two. He was, he was really short. And his, his, his collars were a little long. And he was just kind of clumsy when he was preaching. And, and I'm sitting there just in complete judgment, just kind of going, this guy, what's he? Clearly he's doing, you know, somebody's doing him a favor. And I'm listening to him, and I'm not enjoying the sermon at all. And on my way home, the Holy Spirit says, well, what would you have preached if you had preached that passage? And I was like... Yes, I go home, I write a whole sermon out, I'm proud of it, I look at it and I go, there. And the Holy Spirit says, you would have heard that if you were listening for me and not looking at him. And it taught me something. It taught me that God can use anybody. When it comes to the non-essentials, the point is never who's right or who's wrong. Good arguments can be made for either side. We start in different places, so we land in different places when it comes to this issue of women in ministry and women preaching. The church is not comprised of people who agree on everything. In fact, the beauty of the church is that we don't agree on everything except Jesus Christ. And the fact that God can use anyone is why I'm standing here today, not because I'm so great or so wonderful, but because I am his creation. 
He can use his creation to speak. He says even without the word, one day we will not have an excuse because everything he has made shows forth who he is. He speaks through women, specifically people like Rahab and Esther and Ruth and Deborah, who was a judge and a governor. And, and she was strong in battle and Abigail and Lydia and Mary and the woman at the well and the women at the tomb. And Priscilla, who Paul says risked her life to teach, and Junia, well known among the apostles, and Phoebe and so many others. And maybe some of you think that the idea of a woman preaching is just rubbish. And that's fine too, because God can speak through nothing. He can speak through the jawbone of an ass. And Lord knows I've been that from time to time. <laughs> And a pile of ashes he can speak through. He can talk through a plant, both living and dead, the way he did with Jonah, a mustard seed or a grain of wheat. He can speak through withering grass or dry bones and breadcrumbs and poured out wine. Or maybe you think I'm foolish that I think that God can speak through anything and everyone. That's okay, because then today I will be one of the foolish things that he uses, hopefully. We are all here for a reason today. It's not a reason for those on one side to boast or those on another side to grouse. It is that we are all here. So my desire is that you would stay engaged, that you would take some notes, that you would spend your time with me as I spend my time with you today. But um, point your ears toward God, and I will do the same. With that said, let's talk to Jesus. So we're in a series in the book of Mark, and the goal, as Cam said, was to get to know Jesus, to know who he is, that he's not some historical figure who's gone, that he is actually alive and relational, and he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf, and he's reaching out to us daily, moment by moment. And he's, as we make our way to the cross, during this particular season, we're looking at the disciples who are truly struggling. They are cracking under the pressure of making a transition that they are loath to make. And we're also looking at how Jesus is handling that same transition. And so our text is Mark 14, as you heard, 43 through 52. And there's so much in those nine verses. But in order for us to see it, it's important for us to remember that the gospel writers, they were not historians, they were not bean counters, they were not pitchmen, they were not recorders, but rather they were storytellers. And why does that matter? It's because story is the container that God uses to help us make sense of who he is, who we are, who we are to him, and how we engage with other people. When you think about story, everything God does happens within the container of story. So for example, when he is creating, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and there was chaos and there was darkness. And then the light shines in the darkness, that's a story. Light overcomes dark, that's a story. When he talks about how he made the trees and he, then, he, then he made the animals and everything, the idea that God prepares a space and then invites us into that space, that's the story. When we look throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we see people whose lives are a type of Christ and there's a reason for that. There's a reason Moses and Deborah and Ruth and David and so many others show us pictures of who Christ is is because from Genesis to Revelation, there's only one, one story. 
the story of a loving God saving a dying world. And so when you think about good storytelling, good storytelling always acts kind of like an iceberg, where you have this part that you see, and it's the part that stewards your attention. It's the part that says, hey, come here, take a look, look at this, take, take a look at this. But then there's this whole big thing that the story is actually about, the part of it that gives it weight and meaning and truth that happens underground, and the goal is to actually look for that part of the story. So when we look at this passage and we see, in my Bible it says, as the, uh, as the heading, it says, Jesus is arrested. When you look at the things that you see, Jesus being arrested, Jesus being deserted, Jesus being betrayed by Judah, Judas, it's tempting if you want to just kind of spend your time at the top of the iceberg, just kind of looking at what's happening, looking at those people. So you see Judas and you see the crowd and you see the disciples and you even see a streaker at the end who's running and we'll get to him later. <laughs> but we can get stuck in those places and we can get stuck making judgments. Like what can I do to keep from being like the bad people and what do I need to do to be like the good guy, Jesus? But how do we get to what matters in the story? How do we get to what's below the surface of actually what's happening? Because it is important. And as with all stories, Jesus is our teacher and he is our guide. He moves everybody in the text, and by extension us, deftly from what we see to what we can't see and then we can't unsee. He always, Jesus always centers the kingdom of God the rule and the reign of God. It's what he's always looking at, it's what he's always pointing to, it's what he's always talking about and walking toward. That is his life. It is the seat of his desire. My meat, he says, is to do the will of the one who sent me. If Jesus is there, the kingdom is there. And if the kingdom is there, it's holding everything up and it's giving it weight and meaning and purpose. And we see that even in this passage as well. Yes, we see Jesus arrested. We see him betrayed. We see him deserted. But Jesus himself tells us what this is really about. Now this incident is recorded in all four Gospels, and so what I want you to know is that Jesus kind of talks about what it's about in each of the Gospels. In Matthew 26, 54 and 56, he says, but how then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? He says, this has all taken place so that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. In Mark, it says, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. In Luke 22, it says, every day, Jesus said, I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Luke is very dramatic. I love that. Then John says, Jesus says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Translation, my meat is to do the will of the one who sent me. This is what he's been telling them about this whole time, what everything has been leading to. In fact, right after Peter says to him, you are Christ, you are son of the living God. And Jesus says, I'm upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Right after that, it says in this passage that, that Jesus started to tell them about 
what was going to happen to him, how he was going to be delivered up to the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the rulers of the law and everything. And they were going to torture him and hurt him and kill him. And, and even when he told them that, he's like, this is what's about to happen to me. Peter takes him off to the side and says, you know, you're bringing the room down, Jesus. And we need to, we need to have a different kind of conversation here. At which point Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are, you are stumbling block to me. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Fast forward, here we are in the Garden of Gethsemane right after Jesus has prayed, and everything that he has said originally is now getting ready to come true. This is where it's happening. It is what Jesus told his disciples about. It is what the prophets had already said. Zechariah saying, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Isaiah, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before the shearers. He never said a word. Even King David in a psalm says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. That is this. We're in the garden and all that's been said and all that he said to them is all beginning to happen now. And underneath that you can kind of hear the verse we hear over and over and over again, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. In all of this turmoil and upset and and, and craziness and chaos, we see the grace of God. We see that Emmanuel has come to us, not just them, but us, to all of us. And he meets them, and by extension us, in our human concerns and invites us along with him, with them, to embrace the concerns of God and make those concerns our concerns. In this hour where darkness reigns, the light of the world shines brightest. Now when we look at Jesus through um, each of his encounters in this garden, whether it's Judas or the crowd or the disciples, when we look at Jesus' encounter with each of them, an excruciatingly beautiful picture begins to emerge. We see both what's happening and we see what's there. We see a savior driven to do the will of God by the love that God has for his people and God's love for him. And with every response, what he does is he exposes the truth and then we see the nature of God's love. And so that's what I want us to really look at in this passage, is to really look at what is the shape of God's love? What is the nature of God's love? What is the, the substance of the way God loves? And so what we'll see when we understand the nature of God's love is we will see just what it cost Jesus to do what he did. And we will see what we're being asked to do as Christ followers. So, so let's, let's look at it. First, when you look at verse 43, we'll just kind of see, we'll set the scene and we'll see who's there. Verse 43 says that Judas, he calls him one of the 12 in the crowd. And then, he, then we see the crowd who is armed with swords and clubs. 
sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. And then we see the disciples, one of whom standing near drew the sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And if we look at that through a kingdom lens, what we see is Judas, who is all about his own kingdom. We see the crowd who is trying to stop the kingdom from coming. And then we see the disciples who want to force the kingdom to become, to come on their own terms. But Jesus, ever the teacher, will ask each one of them a question that invites them to see and invites us to see what it means to truly love. So the first one we'll look at is Judas. And what Judas teaches us about love is that when you love someone the way God loves, you give them the power to hurt you. Mark 14, 44 and 45 says, Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him, lead him away under guard. Going, once to, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now the King James Version is a little more accurate because what it says is master, master. And usually with, with us, when we translate something into English, we say, well, what's most comfortable? But the truth is, is that the Jewish, in the Jewish culture, to say a name twice actually meant something. So when you, see, when you see that God calls to Moses out of the burning bush in the book of Exodus, he says, Moses, Moses. When he calls Samuel the prophet as a little child, he says, Samuel, Samuel. When David loses his son, he cries, Absalom, Absalom. When Martha is kvetching and complaining about Mary, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Jesus, looking out over his people, says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have desired to gather you together like chicks, but you would not. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Judas, when he walks up and he says, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kisses him, to call a name twice means to claim an intimate connection with the one that you are addressing. So Judas is walking up claiming this intimate connection that he has with Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, Rabbi. And then he kisses him. And the word in the Greek is not to just give him a peck on the cheek, but it's to kiss him like he really cares about him. It's the, it's the father when the prodigal comes home, how he fell on his neck and kissed him. But it was like a big showy kind of a thing. And Jesus says to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Son of Man is his Messiah name, the one that Daniel 7 talks about when Daniel had the dream, the one who will save the world by resisting the temptation to seize power for his own sake. And so it's important to understand that he has given Judas the power to hurt him, but we have to remember what Jesus said when he said, one day there will be others who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And I will say, depart from me. I don't know you. But that's not the case with Judas, even though he came to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi. Judas was claiming something was actually true. He's saying to him, to Judas, he's saying, let's be clear about what's really happening here. It's not just that you sold me out 
for 30 pieces of silver, but you are using my love for you against me. You are using my love against me. Psalm 55 actually um, encapsulates it really nicely. It's a psalm of David, but it is also a prophetic psalm about what's going on with Jesus when this season is happening. And Jesus says, uh, Spirit says through David in Psalm 55, 12 to 14, he says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked out among the worshipers. There is something special and uniquely excruciating about being hurt by someone who is close to you, someone who swore to trust you, somebody who is, say, a parent who abuses, or a relative who abuses. Maybe it's a spouse that cheats on you. There's an understanding that this is who we are in this relationship that we have. And to violate that is even worse than if an enemy hurt you. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I have experienced church hurt. And I always tell people there is no pain like church hurt because it almost looks like somebody's standing there with you and they're hugging you, right? And the people are out here looking at this relationship, but you're on the other side. Somebody's hitting you in the head with a rock close up. If you were far away, I could duck, right? But if you hug me and you hit me, it's more painful. And that's what church hurt looks like because there are a bunch of people over here who say, look how much he loves. And meanwhile, you're getting bludgeoned. And that's why when people leave churches because of church hurt, it is something special and excruciating. Maybe you're a parent and a son or a daughter rejects you. It's so hard to experience that kind of hurt. But on top of that, at least most of the time, you can go away and hide when you experience that kind of pain. But Jesus has to tell Judas this is what you are doing to me. Jesus did not withhold himself, even knowing that Judas was going to betray him. He washed Judas's feet along with everybody else's. Isn't that hard when you think about it? Love gives others the power to hurt you. Now, for those of you who are looking at Judas thinking about what a jerk he is and what a horrible dude he is, I have up here a box of stones for you so that the first one of you who has never, ever betrayed Jesus or someone else like that, you're more than welcome to come and get them and throw them at Judas. But I know I have been Judas in my life. I know that I have violated those times when I have said, you can trust me, and then maybe I wasn't trustworthy. And I've not just done it to people, I've done it to God. And so I don't know about you, but I see myself in Judas. And then there is the crowd. You have this bunch of people who come out into this garden and they've got swords and they're a big gang and they've got rocks and clubs and all that. It's, it's really overkill. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus says that to him. He says in verse 48 and 49, he says, am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled or as in Luke's dramatic fashion, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Shoot your shot, guys. It's your time. When you love the way God loves, you have to choose not to use your power against people, even when they deserve it. Grace and mercy mark God's love. It's really hard to understand that kind of love, especially in our American culture. We, we think about things like how, how the Constitution says we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, we are entitled to those things, and those things are constitutional, but they're not exactly biblical. We believe in our rights, and we believe that we need to have our rights, but the truth of the matter is, is the only thing we are entitled to is to be toast in front of a very holy God. We are heirs, and that's very different than what it means to be entitled to something. We have what we have because of the Father we have, not because we are entitled to it. And so we live in this culture where we're a real reactionary bunch, aren't we? It's like we get ready to cancel people. If somebody makes us upset, why? Because I should be comfortable all the time. And when I'm not comfortable, I won't buy your stuff. And when you make me angry, I'm going to tell all my friends not to buy your stuff. And that's what we do. And because you do this thing, we've decided you need to pay for this for the rest of your life. We're ready to cancel when somebody offends us. What if God canceled everybody who offended him? I'm just asking. What if God just said, if it's offensive, I'm just going to cancel you? What if he tweeted that out? <laughs> Just to his followers. I'm done. It's over. If we got what we deserved, Jesus would never have gone to the cross. Super Bowl Sunday, he'd be kicking it with the rest of us. He'd be like, whew, glad I didn't have to do that cross thing. And in fact, he wouldn't be kicking it with the rest of us because we wouldn't be here. We'd be gone. Adam and Eve, toast, nothing else. He'd make new people, not people like us. Somebody sent me an email a week or two ago, and it was not a kind email. Now, I make my living with words, and so I said, I got this. So I sit there with my laptop, late at night, just me and the laptop, or so I thought, until I wrote this really beautiful, eloquent, lovely, cutting sentence. It was one of those ones where you cut a person and they don't know they've been cut until the limb falls off and you're long gone by then. <laughs> Some of us have mouths like that. I got a pen like that. So I start writing, and I thought I was by myself until the Holy Spirit tapped me on the shoulder and said, yeah, all that's true, but take that out. And then I started 
back and forth. It was me, Holy Spirit, me, Holy Spirit, him going, oh, nice, take that out. Oh, good, take that out. And I'm going, I gotta answer her. He says, yeah, but you gotta love her first. Your job is not to simply answer her. Your job as my daughter is to love her with that answer. And so what I realized as I was writing the, the email was that there were so many things that I just wanted to say because I think she just needed to know. I needed to show her that she was wrong about this and I was right about this and God was saying, none of that matters. What matters is you need to love her with your answer. And that required me to withhold a bunch of stuff that I did not want to withhold. And then I realized the next morning because I was exhausted and then I went to church. After I, after I sent the email, it turned out to be three tiny paragraphs. Three tiny, non-violent, gracious, <laughs> sweet, but truthful paragraphs. Forgiving paragraphs. Paragraphs where I had to say that I was weary and I was sad, but I couldn't react out of that place. So I get to church the next day and, and worship starts up and I'm sitting there just in tears. I'm a bucket, I'm a puddle. And I realized that it's because the night before I was in battle. It was a spiritual battle to try and figure out how to love someone who has said to you, you are my enemy. How to pray for somebody who says to you, you are not God's child, you are not godly, you're a heretic, you're the, all the things that basically say you're nothing and you don't matter. All night trying to come up with three paragraphs that would say, I hear you. Here's the truth, I love you. It's as much true as the rest of it was. And so it's hard and it's a battle to love people who oppose you and set themselves against you. And you're not being a doormat when you do that, it's quite the opposite. You are walking in the freedom of saying, God will take care of that. God's got that. That's not mine to do, that's not, my, that's not my battle, that's not my fight to have. My battle is how do I love while God takes care of the vengeance part of it, if he's gonna take care of it at all. Because I don't know how she responded to that email. She was really comfortable sending me the emails like this long. And I like to send back an answer that's that long. But I sent back three small paragraphs and I haven't heard from her. So I don't know, but what I do know is that she and I both know Jesus and we both love Jesus and this is Jesus' to deal with. When you decide to love the way God loves and you choose not to use your power against others whether they deserve it or not, you choose love 
and you leave vengeance to God and it requires you to trust God and to cede all of your power to him. Now we look at the disciples. I honestly think this is the most painful lesson we have to learn about loving somebody God's way is the way Jesus encounters the disciples. They teach us that God's love is uncompromising and never transactional. What do I mean when I say it's uncompromising? Greater love has no man than this, Jesus says, than a man will lay down his life for a friend. In that garden, the disciples were willing to settle for less than the greatest love because they want to fight. It says, then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Okay, so I need to take a break right here. Let's think about that for a second. You take your sword, you strike somebody, and you cut off their ear. How did you swing that sword and cut off an ear? Nobody, nobody swings a sword like that. Right? Nobody does that. So then you go, well, maybe nobody swings a sword like that. How do you swing a sword? Like that. So how do you get an ear when you do that? You aim for the head, and the guy ducks. Peter was not playing. This was not, oh, I cut off an ear. This was, I'm aiming for your head right now. I'm going to kill you. And the guy ducks and he cuts off his ear. There's no other way to get a guy's ear with a sword. So I look at that and I'm like, dang, those dudes came to play. They were willing to settle for being what the, what the, Celtic, what the, uh, the, the Celtic people called kombrogi. Kombrogi means that you are a sword fellow, a sword brother. I will fight to the death on your behalf. They're willing to settle for that. They're like, we don't gotta do this whole lay down your life business, we got swords. They only got two, but Pete's like, but I'm going out swinging. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He heals the enemy and asks a question. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? God's love will never fall short of God's word. Isaiah 55, God says, my word will never return to me void. It will go out and it will do the thing that I sent it out to do. It will accomplish that thing. So God's love will never fall short of his word because his word goes out and it comes back doing exactly what he sent it out to do. So Jesus is like, look, they're not taking my life. I'm laying it down. Then he asks the same question, but in a different way. He says in Matthew's account, he says, do you think I cannot call my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? Translation, shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? We think about Gethsemane when, uh, when Cam talked about that last week and how he talks about how Jesus goes in 
to Gethsemane. He comes, he goes into Gethsemane asking if this cup could pass from me. And he comes out saying, shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? What's the difference? Fear drove him into Gethsemane, but love drove him out. Love kept his hand from the sword and love shut his mouth. And it didn't make him weak because when you think about it, Gethsemane, as Cam told you last week, is the oil press, right? And when you think about what it means to press an olive to get the oil, you see the image, right? That God put Jesus under so much pressure that he got out of him what was in him. And so you have Jesus who's coming out of Gethsemane stronger than he was. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says of Christ on his way to the cross, to be silent does not mean to be inactive. Rather, it means to breathe in the will of God, to listen attentively, and then be ready to obey. The disciples were still driven by fear. And fear is one of those things that's interesting because fear is everything that love is not. Love is patient. Fear wants to rush you. Love is kind. Fear wants to be mean and cut off an ear. Love, in, love does not insist on its own way. Fear demands its own way. And the lie that fear tells us is that it is reasonable and it can reason. Fear is a feeling. And feelings are like three-year-olds. It's okay to have them in the car, just don't let them drive. <laughs> because they can't see over the dashboard, so they don't know where they're going, and their feet are too short to touch the brakes, so they don't know how to stop. So when you consider that perfect love casts out fear, it's because fear will torment you into doing what it needs you to do. Fear does not know how to follow. But perfect love casts out fear and makes us courageous. I always actually describe courage as fear that has learned to follow. Because you don't need courage if you're not afraid. So don't be upset at yourself if you're afraid. Fear is not your problem. It's what you do with the fear. It's where the fear drives you. It's what you decide with the fear. Jesus goes into Gethsemane with fear and then he comes out with courage. In fact, he told the disciples, I need you to watch and pray. He didn't ask them to watch and pray just because he was lonely. He's like, watch and pray because you need to see what it looks like when somebody gets sifted like wheat by Satan and what their response is. They take their fears honestly to God. They do, they listen to what God's will is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, and then they become ready to obey. Why? Because God gives us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that's how they panicked because they just didn't watch and pray. They didn't see how to handle the actual situation. And it's not, love is not transactional, meaning there's no quid pro quo. Love doesn't demand love in return. When we were still enemies, Jesus died for us. When they ran, Jesus didn't call them back and say, hey, you guys said you weren't going anywhere. He let them go. It's like the prodigal's father. He's like, give me my money, let me out. And dad didn't go, don't go, son. He just let him go. 
because love chooses even when it is not chosen. So it is uncompromising, but it is not transactional. It doesn't require you to love me back. Verse 50 says, everyone deserted him and fled. Jesus was left alone. I looked at that and then I thought, well, who should have stayed? We think in ourselves, we go, well, everybody should have stayed. Why? What were they gonna do? Not one person in that place was capable of doing what Jesus was capable of doing. Not one of them could have stayed. Not one. Now there's this odd couplet that comes at the end. And it says in Mark's gospel, a young man, only in Mark, by the way, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now there's lots of speculation. Who was that guy? (laughs) Did Mark put himself in there like Alfred Hitchcock puts himself in his own movies or Stan Lee? What's going on? This is so weird, right? Naked guy running around. Why do we forget that the Word of God is a story? And so what we see tells us a truth about something that's underneath. And so I believe it is a parable when you see that guy. You see this person who is, who is, is naked. First of all, maybe you don't see yourself in Judas. Maybe you say, I would never be a betrayer. Maybe you don't see yourself in the crowd and you say, well, I'm not an enemy of of Christ. Or maybe you don't see yourself in the disciples and you, like Peter, you would say, well, I'd never leave him and I'd never walk away. But, But that young man, naked and exposed, he is all of us because all have sinned and fallen short. We are the children of Adam. And so this image harkens back to the original garden in Genesis, where you remember the pitiful attempts of Adam and Eve to clothe themselves. And we, like Adam and Eve, are an unholy lot as Adam's offspring, but God covered them. He covered their nakedness in the same way he covers our nakedness. And he covers our nakedness because of what Jesus did. Jesus is the reason we are covered in our sin. He, as the new Adam, becomes our family when we are born again. He became exposed and vulnerable and humiliated like that young man for our sake. He enters our story so that we can then enter his story. Because of Jesus, we can choose to give ourselves freely, withholding nothing, even with the Judases in our midst. Because of Jesus, we can meet our enemies with forgiveness, crossing bridges and healing instead of finding new ways to hurt people. We can refuse to settle for anything less than God's love, whether or not that love is returned. We can be uncompromising, and yet we can love unconditionally. Because Jesus loved us, because he loved us enough to endure the cross, to overcome death, we have the power to love him and to love others in the same way. Let's pray.